Back to that, you know, catchphrase, we're all in this together. We're really not because, you know, I know that we're doing the right thing by limiting our capacity and, and a lot of restaurants are, but um, I'm sure you've walked down the street recently and seen them jammed in like sardines. And these other people are just being totally irresponsible and, and cashing in on the opportunity. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. During the series, we've heard from all kinds of operators, big and small, and the challenges they've faced. In some regards, it's been evident that throughout the pandemic, people who have skin in the game and run their own restaurant have had to do whatever it takes to survive. Others, often working for bigger groups, have been forced to sit on the sidelines, wondering when they'll get back on the pans or on the floor. With slim margins commonplace, what will it take? to create a viable restaurant moving forward. Mark Jensen is a co-owner of award-winning restaurant Red Lantern in the Sydney suburb of Darlinghurst. Mark, how are you going? I'm very well, Anthony. How are you this morning? I'm good. Um, Talking of owners doing whatever it takes to survive, you had a mannequin dressed up on the street outside the restaurant. How did that all start? (laughs) Yeah, look, um, look, when this pandemic started, it was just crazy because, I mean, um, you know, that that when there was just a rumour in the air, my my bookings dropped by 50% and and then it became very – apparent very quickly that business was not going to be anywhere near normal. So so we quickly developed a takeaway model uh, based around our staff dinners and I wanted that that model to be at a really easy, accessible price point. So, you know, it was about, say, $16 average for, for a meal, which was considerably less than what we normally charge in the restaurant. Um, but also we, we wanted to have fun with it because, I mean, you know, as humans, like as humans, we hate change. I mean, that's one of the things humans fear. And um, that word I just mentioned, fear, we didn't want to buy into it. So we knew it was serious. We, we wanted to follow all the health advice, um, but we certainly won't, weren't going to be fearful. And we accepted that so much of this was beyond our control from the get-go. So we decided to have some fun. So, you know, I kept all the staff on that I could. Uh, and my model was built around having the kitchen team in, in the kitchen during the day for four hours, preparing meals into the cool room. And Adam, my uh, restaurant manager, and I would be there in the evening uh, to, to sell them. And we, you know, first Adam's quite a quick quirky character and he had this mannequin laying around so we, we decided we needed some street presence so that's how Keith came about and so we dressed Keith up in a in a team red lantern shirt got him out the front holding holding some um takeout bags and you know the legend of Keith was born <laughs> is Keith still employed by the restaurant <laughs> well he he um fortunately was one of the most um efficient and economical uh <laughs> members of the team to keep during that that this time actually well uh, you briefly mentioned that you switched to a takeaway model uh, straight away and it was at a lower price point uh, can you tell us a bit about that you mentioned that they were on a staff meal model and and also i know that yes. you know you've had your um concerns about delivery platforms can you tell us what sort of situation you set up in regards to the takeaway model yeah sure sure well 
you know, we were we wanted to keep it happy and we wanted to keep the vibe high because by doing that, and we wanted wanted our community, our customers, to uh, know that you know we were following the the guidelines, keeping everybody safe. But we also, I also knew I didn't want to rely on a delivery platform uh, to deliver that food, so I needed people to be confident uh, to come out in the evening and pick up pick up their their meals from us um you know i've had experience with delivery platforms in the past and and i knew that you know there was this everyone was trying to jump onto these platforms and i know from experience that the, you do that then you, you stand no chance i mean not only other commissions like impossible to um uh to, to to pay and stay on top of to keep your business afloat but um people quite often sort of say but it's all about um marketing and Seriously, there's no marketing. If you're a new player on a platform, you get no marketing. So I, I you know, we really wanted uh, people to feel safe and come and pick up the product. So, um, and I wanted them to do that uh, more than once once a week, or at least at least uh, do it at once a week, so that it was affordable that they could take home and feed the family. What sort of meals were they? You mentioned that it's at a much lower price point, and they were based on staff dinners. Was it still the kind of food that you would eat at Red Lantern? No, it wasn't because I wanted to preserve that product. Because I mean, you know, nothing lasts forever, so I wanted uh, to preserve my in-house dining menu. I didn't want to throw that in a box and then try and you know charge the, a similar price point. So at five o'clock or five thirty around the nation, I'm sure in every in every restaurant, uh, front of house and back of house, sit down for a staff meal, and that that meal's usually you know obviously really tasty, but it's usually made with all the offcuts of the of the of the. Um, butchery or the trim used that day with some vegetables. So, um, you know, that's, that's how the inspiration sort of came about. But rather than using offcuts, of course, I, I ordered in products specifically for the meals that we're preparing uh, so that the numbers all made sense for us. What was it like for you cooking during this period? Well, interestingly, I didn't do a lot of cooking. I actually found myself doing a lot of social media work, and and that's something that I usually uh, tend to avoid. Uh, I think that you know the, the role in social media in this industry is just insane these days. I mean, you know, I'm old enough to remember when I started cooking 30 years ago. That you know, if you if if you did a good job, word of mouth pretty much did did the trick. And if you had a telephone line and, and a piece of paper and, and a pen at hand, you could take a reservation and, and pretty much um, fill out your um, your restaurant for the for, for the evening. So I, you know, I jumped on reluctantly to the modern world and, and started sort of just social media metering the shit out of the restaurant and what we were doing. Uh, so much so that, that I commented that I was just like my teenage daughter. I'd spent so much, so many hours on the phone. Like one day I looked and I'd been on there for like seven hours was just plugging stuff getting um getting the word out so it was more about managing like i mean it's interesting as you mature in this industry it becomes for a lot of people i'd, I'd say what it became for me um of course it's about the food i mean i love food i love creating dishes but it becomes more about managing the whole ecosystem and importantly the business because without a business you don't have a platform to do good food so it was about me managing my team, uh, managing the food costs, um, and getting out and negotiating with everyone, negotiating rent deals, negotiating with suppliers, doing everything. I, I was very on the front foot about this. Like, um, I, th- I think that first week when people got off the Ruby Princess, I was like, this is, this is going to be shit. So I sort of immediately contacted my landlord. I contacted suppliers because, you know, you're always running, running 
a, a bit of debt in a restaurant, like, you know, you've usually got 30 days or, or 90 days to pay your bill. So if, and that ten, tends to flow quite nicely, but if the tap's turned off immediately, obviously you're left with, with some outstanding. So I had to get onto that straight away. So I'd say that I was more of a culinary curator, um, but certainly put my business business cap on during this time. You briefly mentioned uh social media and you know the, your role during the pandemic what do you think the impact of social media has been on the industry given that not every restaurant has a social platform um, but many have been reliant on that during the pandemic to survive yeah it's in- it's interesting isn't it it's um you know i i'm aware it's content i mean like adam and i got into a role where we started to conceive really crazy videos so so eventually we we developed we decided that adam would deliver um and we developed a character adam delivers and we developed a series of videos around that and social media was very important so we had to place that on our social media and it's not like that specifically that people were going to see that and then think hey restaurant delivers but it was just to stay um front front of mind um i've seen the evolution of, of social media uh, throughout my career, and I, I see it as an extra expense. So, you know, I know a lot of people have talked about slim margins, and 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 that is absolute truth. But there's things like it's all the add-ons now. It's all it's all the clip the ticket platforms that that take away from the operation um, profit of a restaurant uh, to to keep it viable. So so to have a really savvy social media presence, you have to have a really savvy media social media department <laughs> so a lot of people don't have that i don't have Which is that. you yeah exactly right so so you take on all these different roles you start wearing all these multiple hats so it's it's just been uh, very very curious it's been a very curious time that it, that it's it's important but it's not because it doesn't necessarily affect the the, the experience that the the customer has within the four walls of your your restaurant What's this period been like in regards to profitability and, you know, keeping money in, in the bank and the restaurant afloat um, just before you opened up with this model that wasn't really the Red Lantern model? Uh, look, it's it's been such an interesting time. But again, you know, if I think I accepted that um, – so much of this was beyond my control, right? So much is beyond my control. But the amount of things I do now as an as a owner, operator, chef, um, I remember like about the, uh, mid-April, uh, Gabrielle Hamilton from Prune wrote an article about how, you know, she had this amazing restaurant, like it's full every night, then this happens. But then she started talking about margins, how she's down on the floor, um, you know, sweeping things out because she can't afford to pay anyone, but she's deemed successful. And, and I would say that much the same, like people looking at Red Lantern, we've been around for 20 years. And even myself, I would consider myself, you know, reasonably successful. I've had opportunities beyond most most people. I've done, you know, all radio, television uh, shows, different things, but re- written a cookbook. Um, but, you know, I'm still down on the, I'm still down there on the kitchen floor, regrouting the kitchen, you know, I'm painting things, I'm doing things. So, so managing the, the company finances is like, so hands-on so you know again like before i mentioned about ordering products specifically for um uh, the takeaway model but that that wasn't going to be viable long term because i was running like a food cost of about 39 percent on a takeaway model where i'm charging 16 dollars because ethically i couldn't put shit product in in what i was going to serve my customers right so so 
it's it's a constant constant struggle um, keeping everything above board. I think I think um, you know uh, there's there's so many aspects to 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 running a restaurant which I think um, uh, young players don't don't really appreciate. Um, what are some of the key elements you think in regards to the viability of a restaurant at the moment? Well. Um, I'd say number one is rent. Okay, so you people have got to negotiate rents, and if landlords aren't negotiating with their with their tenants, then then they they're playing a really short sighted game. I think um, you know Solomon Lou came out in the beginning of May and said that you know he, we maybe we should just pay rent on uh, on a percentage of, of gross sales, and I think that's certainly a model that should be considered going forward because that old that old real estate model of, of landlords trying to keep their rent high to keep the valuation of their property high is is so last century and it's 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 not sustainable going forward uh so so, so certainly rent i think that um <clears throat> wages is is an issue and i think that it's in, it's interesting how you know everyone sort of comes out and says oh the restaurants are ripping off uh, their employees but restaurants are not ripping off their employees at, at at a whole, um, in the majority, so certainly I'm I'm positive some are, but but the thing is, you know, you got to remember, Anthony. Like when I was an apprentice, I, I was working like 60, 70, 80 hours a week for some really noted chefs around town, right? And I'm I'm not saying that that was correct. I think people should be paid properly. But what I'm saying is I was playing a long game because I knew that those hours, I mightn't have been getting paid for it, but I knew I was going to be paid long term. I was, I was going to be in a position where I could run my own restaurant and, and, and develop my own career. Um, you know, and, and t times have changed and I certainly don't want to go back to that model. And the thing is that people should get paid properly for the hours that they work. But then if you look at the bigger picture of that, so – you know, obviously, the margins of restaurants has got something to play here. So, where do my how do restaurants pay their bills by charging the customer? So, the customer has to pay more for their meal, so that all the pieces of the puzzle fall into place. And I think that it's quite easy for for the public to sort of point the finger at at, at restaurant owners, but they have to wear some of the responsibility for this. What do you think the public's role is in this sort of restaurant ecosystem, and how can that mindset change? Well, I think that the food for me, people's appreciation of food has always fallen into two categories. And one is like people see food as fuel and other other categories people will see it as a dining experience, okay? So, so people can't walk into a restaurant and look at a menu and say, gee, it's $45 for, I don't know, yellowfin tuna or whatever. How dare they charge that? Because they're just looking at the food on the plate. They're not looking at the entire environment in which they're sitting in, you know. I mean, if I had my time again, I'd spend hardly any money on a, on a shop fit out because that's just dead money. You might as well just, you know, <laughs> walk, walk to the toilet and throw all your dollars in there and, pre <laughs> and press flush. Like ser seriously, as a small operator or independent operator, that's that's what you're doing with your money. But this is an expectation that the, that the public have that they should be sitting on design of this and that. and But then they don't factor that into to the cost of the, the product on the plate. And certainly they don't factor in the, um, the rent on the, the location. So, you know, that's what I mean about the public's role. They have to sort of broaden their, their perspective a little bit. I mean, just, just the other day, you know, I get a call about, you know, getting my grease crap clean. It's like there's all, there's all these like 
expenses that restaurants pay that the public would have no idea about. And these, all these little expenses have to be um, included in the price that you pay for that, that piece of tuna on your plate. You know, you sort of mentioned about that you, you know, wouldn't spend money on a fit out moving forward with a restaurant as a small operator. What are, what are some of the things that you think you'll change or you have changed um, because of the pandemic with a restaurant? Well, I've certainly sharpened the pencil. Like it's it's pretty interesting because like, you know, as an Asian, Asian restaurant, and like I said, we've been around for 20 years, there was an expectation that the menu should be of a certain size. And also we, are we sort of, um, I guess, developed our own uh, whip for ourselves as well because we started to cater for individual um, uh, dietary needs. So I think we've got quite a reputation now for catering for different people's um, dietary requirements. So, uh, you know, it's about um, just sharpening that pencil. So now, like, since, since the pandemic... I've really honed in on the offering because we've now opened uh, three nights a week, about to go to four nights a week. But I offer one banquet menu and that's at a set price. So I'm pretty much uh, using that set price as a cover charge of entry. So from that sort of set menu, I have I can run a pescatarian menu and I can run a vegetarian menu off that, but it's still the same price. And I know exactly now how much labour input I need to run that to run that banquet menu and I know exactly to, to the scent how much ingredient I need to run that banquet to the scent. So this has been a really interesting side, like rather than sort of catering for everybody, and I still believe that what I'm offering does cater for everybody, but I'm doing it far more efficiently. I'm doing it with, with less um, staff involvement, um, which is obviously a massive saving in, in wages, but is that a good thing for the industry going forward if restaurants start operating with less with less um, staff? I, I don't know. What does that mean to the, um, the the culinary landscape if if restaurants can't afford to have staff anymore? Does, does that eventually lead to a dumbing down of the culinary landscape where you essentially see these uh, decom- uh, these um, different levels of dining where you have really fantastic dining at the at the top available to few and then you have a massive really dumbed down level below that i don't know what's been the public reaction um since you've opened it's been great i mean it's been great um to have customers back in the restaurant and also um the reaction from the the guests has 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 been wonderful i think i think they're just excited to be out and dining again to be to be in that environment and you know we're we're fortunate that we have a lot of loyal um customers a little earlier you talked about wanting to protect the identity and brand of red lantern moving to a takeaway model um how do you how do you see the red lantern food model moving forward because you just briefly mentioned about this dumbing down of food potentially um, how do you how do you see the future moving forward with food offerings in Australia? Well, I think that um, so somehow, like menus, just seem to to grow exponentially, right? Like I remember uh, a time when you, if you had six really great entrees on a menu and six really great mains and and a couple of desserts, you had a successful formula. But um, I think people now pander, restaurants now pander to every conceivable um, variation. And I think for a good reason, because I mean, they're consciously aware of um, 
of the margins so they they they're trying to please people so that they they can generate income to pay, to pay the bills but i i think it's time to sort of strip it down so if if you can do if you can do something well then do that well and sort of limit the the um menu offering i think is the best way forward what do you think the impact will be on um service models moving forward and expectations of front of house staff looking for a career in the industry and also the expectations of consumers yeah that's an interesting question because because it's it's obviously it depends on the level of dining and the expectation of the customer so if you're still charging a higher price point then then obviously you're going to need a team of waiters to deliver that food to satisfy the customer's expectations but i think there's going to be a lot of you know like i i yeah i'm not certainly not a luddite but i mentioned my um, dislike of social media before but also a little bit technology like all these platforms now pop up where you can use your iphone to order right or use your your device to to order the phone where you scan a code and the menu pops up and you sort of there there's already already technology that is eliminating the need for a waiter um so it's going to be a really curious time going going forward um for the industry how do you secure really professional in uh, front of house house some um, members how 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 do you you know can you afford to pay them if if the if the the d- dynamic of the of the um the uh, price model is out what is the expectation of um the waiters as far as tipping is con- concerned that's all that's always um an interesting issue how is that manifesting at red lantern moving forward well i think it, well this is this is the thing i mean what i'm doing at the moment i'm it's it's working quite well so i'd like to think that i could move this this forward uh for as long as possible and i'm doing that with a with a you know for example on a saturday night i would normally have 18 people on on the team right so that roughly divided front of house and back out back of house equally at the moment i'm doing that with 3 in front of house and four including myself in the kitchen and you know on a saturday i mean that that's that that's the the making making jam sort of sort of um night of the week right so i'm sort of now taking possibly 2/3 to 3/4 the amount of money that i would normally take with that enormous before with that enormous team now with this model which is extremely a uh, streamline and efficient I'm I'm taking, you know, obviously not that sort of money, but but it it makes better business sense. And this is what it comes back to I was saying earlier, it's about, you know, really putting your business head on. I sure sure I love this industry. It's about creativity, it's about expression, but ultimately it's about business. If you don't know business, you don't have a restaurant. Do you have concerns about the creativity of the industry moving forward because of this pandemic? Well, you know we're in a situation now but you where we think that but you think about how we got to this point even pre pandemic it's like it's it's false expectations so people get into the industry they start doing this really amazing food they don't charge enough for the food that they're doing consider, considering all the input and then they self employed within 18 months or 2 years i think i think the average lifespan of a restaurant is about 2 and a half years so so what do people who are doing this so this is the formula amazing food undercharging um implosion but during that period the dining public at large are going wow i get this amazing food for 
28 bucks. <laughs> so it, these restaurants are setting the, ex, the false expectation. You know what I mean? Like I, I remember that this, this, this little catchphrase, we're all in this together. But if we're truly all in this together, we'd actually take pause and use this pandemic to actually really consider what is wrong with the industry. And part of what is wrong is, is the people out there that are inexperienced, who are not experienced in business, who are setting, setting us up to fail by over-delivering and undercharging. What's the solution for that? <laughs> how how long's a piece of string? Well, I don't know. Like it, it, it's 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 really really interesting. I you know I've, I've been pretty vocal throughout my career. I mean you know almost ten years ago I wrote I wrote a book called um, The Urban Cook, um, a cooking and um, eating for a sustainable future. And what I find interesting is that the conversations that I promoted in that book ten years ago are the conversations that we're still having today. Um, and, and so when you say like, how does that apply to today? The wheels turn slowly. So in that book, I was talking about sustainability and, and about produce sustainability. And back then I was sourcing a lot of produce directly from farmers, but I soon realized that putting my business cap on, that was not sustainable for me as a whole, as a business as a whole, because it was totally inefficient and quite expensive to do that. So, so it became what is sustainable for the entire ecosystem. I love using that word, but it's like, what can I do for, to be sustainable for the planet in the, in the produce that I order? What can I do to be sustainable for the, the team that I employ? And ultimately, what is sustainable for, for the business at large? So they're, 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 big, they're big questions to ask that have to be managed. And, and you find yourself, you know, giving it's a constant give and take and you do the best that you can. But I think people have to ultimately keep their eye on the prize, which is basically staying viable. And that's the business being viable, but also as a human being, as a person. So, you know, I, I also mentioned about five years ago, I was quite public about my own challenges with my mental health. And the thing was, I was living unsustainably. Like the pressure of running a business was detrimental to my health. So I had to step out of that and think, what can I do to be sustainable? Because I've got a long life to live, a long, happy life to live, and I'm not going to let this industry drag me down. So the question about sustainability, what we can do is very broad, very broad, because ultimately you have to be happy and you have to do things that you want to do like I'm committed to the industry, but I don't build my identity around it. So, and this industry demands so much from the people within it that sometimes they don't see the bigger picture of life. And actually, I find what's been interesting throughout this terrific um, podcast series of yours, Anthony, is the fact that almost without exception, every guest you've had on this program has said, "Holy fuck." My partner's actually quite all right now that I'm not working 70 hours a week, you know, or, or geez, I've got kids and they're actually <laughs> awesome. That's amazing, you know, or, hey, I actually love knit, knitting beanies <laughs> like, or, or, or going fishing or, or doing something with all this spare time. So, so this is a plus from the pandemic, right? So people have actually taken pause to say, hey, what do I actually want from my life? So now, to get back to your question, 
the challenge is what can we actually do practical steps to to rebuild an industry where taking all of this into consideration the sustainability of the entire ecosystem where people can actually check in and and run be happy to work knowing that they're going to pay the bills at the end of the week you know interestingly in my position um I, I knowing a lot of a lot of chefs. I mean, I got tired of hearing, like, I, I don't know, when I started speaking out about various subjects, people would run into me and just open up their hearts to me. And many hatted chefs would say to me, why is it that I'm constantly stressed and struggling or s- to pay the bills or celebrating a 5% loss or a, a 2% profit? You know what I mean? Like, you can have all the accolades in the world, but unless you're running a viable business, you're just wearing stress and, and, and you're not enjoying life. There is life beyond the four walls of your restaurant. There really should be. So people have to reclaim that life. And I think that a society of whole have to really ask themselves some really big questions, like what sort of society do we want to live in? And that comes back to my role of, of my point of customers actually appreciating the room in which they're dining. Sure, go out and eat. Go and go and go and flip a lazy twenty on a burger. That's your expectation, right? <laughs> but 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 when you when, but when you when you want to actually go out and celebrate and catch up with friends that you haven't seen for a long time, enjoy the experience. Like don't bemoan the fact that the restaurant is charging a price that they need to charge to keep themselves in business. It's like, you know, a, a, a bank will, will celebrate a 30% profit and, and society seems to accept that. But restaurants barely <laughs> break even. <laughs> and, and, and it's like well, that, that's acceptable because I don't want to pay, I don't want to pay any more for my food. That's enough. It's just crazy. So, so ho- hopefully, you know, one of the benefits of this pandemic is that the society at large takes a pause and, and considers, considers all these bigger questions. And we're, we're seeing that. We're seeing that around the world with different movements, different things. Like there's a lot of hot topics at the moment. Well, as the current flare-up and lockdowns in Melbourne are showing, you know, there are still risks around. How do you think the industry will cope if this becomes the norm for the next two years? It's going to be very interesting. I mean, this the, what's, what's actually killing killing us at the moment is the four square meter rule. I mean, Alan Kohler wrote a really great article in the paper the other day and and um, I contributed to a conversation about that. And it's the, the, the thing is, it's if, if restaurants are confined to the one person per four square meters, um, it's going to be really hard to to survive, especially come September if the government takes away the JobKeeper. Um, so it's 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 going to be a challenging time. I mean, I as much as I say I haven't bought into the fear, and I'm stay, um, keeping buoyant and trying to maintain sanity and and my my general well being. I mean, I'm not immune to this. I mean, I don't know the future of our restaurant. I mean, I'm doing everything that I can to to remain viable. But um, the the one person per four square meter is really a hindrance. But what's interesting too, back to that, you know, catchphrase, we're all in this together. We're really not because, you know, I know that we're doing the right thing by limiting our capacity and, and a lot of restaurants are, but um, I'm sure you've walked down the street recently and seen them 
jammed in like sardines. So, so you know, and then, you know, you get to thinking, so I'm doing the right thing and restaurants like me are doing the right thing for society at large, um, but I'm, I'm copying a financial deficit for that. But then these other people are just being totally irresponsible and, and cashing in on the opportunity. So, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 and then you start to think, who's, who's the mug here? <laughs> like, but, you know, ultimately my moral principle keeps me going forward and I'll, I'll continue to do the right thing. But it's, it's just interesting question. Well, speaking of moving forward, you know, what's some of the positives moving forward for the dining sphere as you see it? Well, I think that it's a lot of, it's more hands-on, right? So I'm back in the I went back in the kitchen more than I probably have ever been in the last. Well, sorry, that that's, doesn't sound right, but I, I'm always sort of in the kitchen. But I mean, this last last six weeks is has been interesting because it's I've been in there really driving it, and I think that there is a, there is a positive um, for the industry coming out of this, but it will be to downscale a little bit. So certainly downscale. I mean, I look at my venue; it's it's a it's a pretty big venue. It's 250 square meters. That's that's in in a city city. That's a lot of money to pay rent for, right? But essentially, I could probably run a restaurant with half out of half of that size. Um, so I think. Uh, it'd be interesting. It'd be more efficient teams. Hopefully, it'd be a more skilled team because half the time that restaurants are running long staff because they're running with a certain amount of unskilled labour, and that unskilled labour doesn't cost you any less. So, hopefully, we'll get more skilled um, people into the industry, and we'll be able to work and make the business viable within a thirty-eight to forty-hour week. Um, and I just think just down downsizing everything and really keeping that that pencil sharp and being really all over your balance sheet is the only way that the industry is going to go forward well mate you always uh been had your finger on the pulse and uh, i thought you had a pretty sharp pencil as it was but turns out you um, got a new sharpener and it's even sharper than before (laughs) (laughs) um it's it's always good to chat and i'm so stoked that we could share the news of keith um, and <laughs> keep in touch. Um, thanks so much for sharing your story and, um, we'll catch up with you down the track and see how things are, are faring as uh, we move forward. Uh, fantastic. Fantastic to talk to you. This is the deep in the weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>